What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain So I just want to bring to your guys' attention that I put out a video explaining the mindset behind my accident, also sharing a lot of the photos surrounding that that haven't been released yet and been getting a lot of love and a lot of feedback on that. So if you're interested in hearing that full story, go to aubreymarcus.com slash accident and check it out. And of course, tell your friends, talk to people, share the message, share the love, you know, spread everything that you hear and see and not just from me, but you know, spread that positivity as wide as you can go. And uh, that's more important than buying anything or doing anything is just actually spreading the message. So I appreciate all you guys doing all of that amazing work. Robert Greene has been one of the most important mentors to me through all of the books that he's written. That first book he wrote, 48 Laws of Power, well, may not have been his first, but the first book of his that I read, 48 Laws of Power, really got me out of some tough situations when I was in my 20s. And I continued to read all of his masterworks, which are so well-researched, which draw in all of these ideas and concepts from history. And I've been retelling stories that I've read about in his books for years. And to get the chance to sit down with him on this podcast and talk about his new book, which I got an early look at, The Laws of Human Nature, which... What is more important than understanding human nature? I don't know. I mean, there's very few things that are more important to navigating life than understanding our own instincts, our own shadows, and all of these elements. And man, just what a pleasure to sit down with Robert and get to drop in with him and talk about his book and talk about the ideas that he has and be able to go back and forth. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as me. It was a real honor for me, and um, I'm really excited to share this with you. So... Here he is, Robert Greene. You know, philosophers often don't practice what they talk about, but to read actually that he was like physically a courageous person is kind of yeah. Well, yeah. we want to we want to pigeonhole. I guess we're just going to go on a rolling start. I'm oh. here with Robert Greene. We're talking about Socrates <laughs> being a badass warrior. We're just going to go with that. That's the start of our podcast here because. We were talking because I think the last time we interviewed was the Warrior Poet Project, and that got us on this topic and talking about people who've lived both expressions. Yeah. And I think it's easier for people, maybe it is one of the laws of human nature, to try and put people in small boxes. Yeah. Make them easily understandable. Oh, Socrates, philosopher, let's put him with white hair, let's make him feeble, let's make him all of these things that we want a philosopher to be. And then you hear him charging out in front of the enemy lines when Alcibiades loses his weapons, holding his shield and fending off attackers so that his lover and friend could, you know, retreat and go back to battle. You go, oh damn. Yeah. That doesn't fit. Right. 
I thought of another one, um, Julius Caesar, because mm. he yeah. was a great writer. Great writer. And he had a very poetic, kind of theatrical mind, extremely brave, daring in battle, risked his life numerous times. He'd be another one. Yeah. God damn, I could think of a lot if I put my mind to it. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, more often than not, there's multifacets to all of these, all yes. of these people that, that we try to think of in, in one way. Well, that's a huge theme in the book, um, that people are much more complex than you imagine. So you tend to look at people through a particular lens based on your childhood, your childhood experiences. You often see reflections of your parents, your siblings, friends, in the people that you see in your present reality. And you tend to simplify them. That's what the human mind does. It simplifies things to make things more understandable. But people are very complicated. They mm -hmm. have shadow sides. They have secret nooks and crannies that you have no idea about. You're more complicated. I make the point in the preface that people are more interesting than they think they are. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting when somebody, instead of hiding their complexity, which a lot of people do, it's really out there like you're a warrior poet. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes you, people feel like they'll get chastised for their complexity. That's right. You know, like if you are really strong and masculine and you express some feminine tenderness for some yeah. aspect, you know, like my, my admission, I loved He-Man characters, but I yeah. also really love collecting My Little Ponies. Now, <laughs> that's now, great to hear now did that that's great did that hear. garner me like a lot of like <laughs> enthusiasm and support from my dad and you know like other male figures no they were like uh are, are, is this okay should should we let him have his yeah. my little pony collection but yeah. that was me i liked him you yeah know? and that's that's okay that was part of the complex narrative but if you if i had conformed and had parents who forced me to conform no you will not play with those my little ponies i'd have like a little my little you mean, pony you mean fetish. pretty little pony is that the one with the like purple <laughs> yeah hair the purple made... hair and they had like yeah. uh like butt tattoos and like, yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah. They, all, they all had they all had the smell like this fresh kind of rubber plastic uh -huh. thing that Kind of like Play-Doh had a smell, like My Little yeah. Ponies had a smell. Yeah. And I had like a stable. It's kind of like, you know, I kind of felt like my own version of Genghis Khan with his many horses. You know, uh -huh. like a Mongol warlord. You kind of turned it into your own thing, <laughs> you know? Or maybe. Or maybe that's my own justification, trying to just well, think that I like playing with pretty horses. Yeah. I'm sure I had something like that, too. But, you know, when you get older, you tend to repress stuff like that, as you say, <laughs> because people will judge you. Yeah. But it's better to bring out all the sides of your personality your character that was so reading this book and and again i wish i would have been able to read every word but i got an early copy and i will read every word when i get the chance but that idea of the integrated human like that to me i hadn't heard it phrased exactly like that and and that to me was like the just it lit all the bells because that's huh. actually really what we're trying to do. We're trying to look into all the nooks and crannies and the shadows, acknowledge those things yeah. and integrate them so that we're a total human. Yeah. The, the, the chapter I really go into that is when I discuss the shadow, mm -hmm. uh, which is a concept um, that Jung kind of popularized, but other people have discussed. And the concept is essentially that uh, when you are five or six years old or younger, um, you have all sorts of positive and negative qualities. I don't even want to even put the words there. You're just a rounded individual. You have aggression. You have 
secret desires to hurt people, your parents you maybe love, but you also resent them. You have a, a full range of emotions. You're a complete person. And guess what? If you're listening to this and be like, no, not me as a five-year-old. I no, was an angel. No, 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 Let's no. look a little harder, everybody, because yeah, yeah. this it, is universal. And if you have children, you know that. <laughs> children yeah. are not angels. I was not an angel by any means. Yeah, uh, I, could, I could go into that, but I won't. Um, but... Then when you get older, um, you have to wear a mask. You have to become... Because some of those traits are not acceptable. They're not acceptable. And for some good reasons, some good reasons sometimes. Sure. You don't want to be uh, aggressive all the time. You don't want to be pushing people around. You need to socialize. You need to learn how to get along. Children aren't necessarily so socialized when they're four or five. So there's a good reason for it. But at the, whole, at the same time, that part of you that was maybe a little more devilish... Um, goes underground. Uh, you're not encouraged to let it out. Um, and as you get older, it gets more and more underground, more and more pushed down. And you sort of try and create a consistent image for people in work or wherever so that you're judged less. We hate being judged in the mm -hmm. social realm. We want people to just sort of see us and like us and make it easy. So the complete person, we start whittling it down to, to a little tiny little point that we show the public, this is who we are. And all those secret sides that you've kind of tried to uh, conceal, they come out in ugly in weird ways as you get older. It's yeah. a shadow. And that's, yeah. I think, the, the key thing. That, there's a couple of key things to understand that those aspects, if they're not brought into the light and they're not integrated, reconciled, observed, brought into awareness, yeah. They will control you from a command position yep. in the unconscious and subconscious elements of our mind. Right. And we will have no grasp of them. And we think that our conscious mind is really in control. Yeah. It's like that great example of, you know, a guy who's trying to quit cigarettes, his mind tells him, well, go to the store and, and buy a, a pack of Doritos. And then he goes and buys the Doritos and right behind the counter, there's cigarettes. Ah, oh, well, since we're already here, we might as well get the cigarettes. Right? right. Like you think you're in control going to buy those Doritos, right. but really it's just your subconscious addiction for those cigarettes yeah. that drove you into the store in the first place. If, if you haven't reconciled those things, yeah. you'll be making all kinds of choices yeah. that are not yours. Well, you've, you've hit the, the core of the book, which is that you really aren't in control of yourself. Uh, there are forces in you. I call these forces human nature. Uh, there are forces in you uh, that go back hundreds of thousands of years from how we evolved as early humans, even as primates. Uh, we actually share a lot of qualities with primates that we're not even aware of. But these forces are wired into your brain. They're wired into your nervous system. They're wired into your, your musculature. Um, and they cause you to behave in certain ways, and you're completely unaware of it. Um, and by not being aware of it, it kind of controls you. So to give an example, I have a chapter on aggression. Um, and uh, I make the point that all humans have aggressive energy. They have competitive desires. They have ambition. They want to make a name for themselves in the world. They want to be recognized for something. And you have to do something with that energy. I don't, I'm not saying that we're violent. Aggression can turn into violence under certain circumstances. But this, this energy, this force to impose ourselves on the world, I call aggression, and we all have it. And if you're not aware of that, if you deny it, if you think, I'm a saint, you know, I, I, no, not me. I'm not really that ambitious. I'm not aggressive. I don't really ever want to hurt people. I'm, I'm just a sweet, nice guy. 
uh, you're in denial. It's there. That energy is there. And so by not recognizing it, not acknowledging it, it controls you. How does it control you? It turns into passive aggressive behavior. That's the main thing that happens. You become a passive aggressive individual. You manipulate people without being even aware that you're doing that. Um, or the energy turns inward and you become aggressive on yourself by hating yourself. I call it, uh, which another psychologist calls it the internal saboteur. You sabotage yourself. And so that aggressive energy attacks you. It's got to go somewhere. Yeah. And by not understanding it, not recognizing it, not realizing that all humans have this, it controls you. And I think one of the reasons why it'll turn on yourself is if you have guilt for having it in the first place and then enough shame that you don't want to look at the guilt acknowledge you know that it's even there because you think that you shouldn't have it then you feel a reason to punish yourself yeah. for what you feel and yeah. so it gives you the justification and then you have this self-fulfilling exactly self-aggression pattern exactly which is just a failure to understand the universal laws of human nature yeah we're fucking savages oh my god there's yeah. like we're savages <laughs> this, this this is the body we're and, in this is the density of of existence that we're in and it it, does, it includes women, I'm sorry yes, to say. everybody. My, my, my girlfriend who edits and reads all my chapters of, since the very first book, um, she's going, my God, man, I'm aggressive. I didn't realize it. I just, it was really like quite a, a shocking thing for me to realize it. Women are aggressive. We are all have it. We, are, we do have this savage, brutal energy in us. And the point that I make in the book is it's not, there's no reason to be ashamed of it. In fact... The bad parts that aggression can cause have a positive aspect. Aggression is also mental. It makes us curious. It makes us want to explore the world. Uh, uh, someone like Einstein is mentally aggressive. The way he attacks a problem mm. and goes out and digs at it for 10 years and is persistent, that is aggression, my friend. That's not some sweet little saintly energy that we think of, of Einstein. It's just channeled a different way. So if you recognize that you have this primal energy, you can, you can channel it into creativity. You can channel it into a fight for justice. You can channel it into being persistent and not allowing yourself to give up before you need to give up. There are ways to use that energy that are eminently positive, but you have to see it first before you can do that. It's really interesting. Just in, you know, a little while ago, I was having a conversation with Jay Shetty, who served three years as a Vedic monk, and he was talking about the practice, his practice of taking any energy, any energy except for one, and using that as like a raw kind of primordial force and then channeling it into something that that was productive so it wasn't like monks don't have sexual energy right they take a vow of abstinence but they're not going to hide from the fact that we're going to think about sex yeah but their practice is okay how do we take that sexual energy channel it into something that's useful for our practice channel it into service or creation or right. that you know energy to heal or however they want to do it yeah and finding so it's the same with aggression you know that anger okay how can we channel that like you said with einstein channel that to attacking a problem rather yeah. than a person yeah channel that to defending those who need to be defended instead of attacking those yeah. that you know are have more than us so that we're envious of right? yeah and the people who try and repress their aggression and imagine that they're saints are actually cutting off great amounts of creative energy in the brain the brain wants to explore. The brain is naturally curious. We want to attack the world. We want to solve problems. And when you try and deny 
your physical aggressive energy, it shuts off that mental side of you. You're trying to control things in a different way. You're trying to control your world by narrowing it, by narrowing the realm, your realm of activity. And you're also doing that with your mind. If you don't explore new ideas, if you don't look at problems from a different angle, if you just have these sort of stereotypical ideas about the world, you can control it. Um, so when you're trying to shut off your aggressive energy because you feel like it's some part of you you can't control, you're also shutting off your mental energy as mm -hmm. well. And you're not, the whole point of the book is you're human. I'm afraid to say you're human. You have these impulses, you have this nature. There's no point in denying it because there's a, a quote from, from Horace, uh, the, the Latin poet, you can throw uh, nature out with a pitchfork, but she keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. You can try and get rid of it, but it keeps coming back. So there's no point in trying to deny who you are. It's better to look at it and find a way to use it. Yeah. And when I was doing research for my book on the chapter on... I got to get a copy. Yeah, I got to get you a copy of the book. Okay. Um, a chapter on sexuality, I was doing some research on power exchange sex. So that includes like, um, it could be under the name BDSM or submission and dominance oh, or yeah. any of these kind of what we would still consider, even though it's gone more mainstream with Fifty Shades and all of these uh, explication of this. They do study, they've done some studies on people who engage in those practices and they don't find that they're more angry or more, you know, have more tendencies towards violence or more of these kind of antisocial behaviors in regular life, they actually find that they have less, uh -huh. that they've been able to channel these into a safe container of yeah. mutual consent where two people want to engage in these, release some of that, mm -hmm. and then they tend, by you know, looking at the research and the studies, tend to leave, live oh. more chill, integrated lives. Very interesting. Because they've, they've gotten to express that. But I do think there is a balance between acknowledging and expressing in safe ways and also like overindulging and kind of over patterning in what way give me what give me example what <clears throat> well i think like you could say that um anger as an emotion right i think that's anger is going to be there in us and to a certain degree and i think there's ways to channel that into positive in positive ways ways to m you know maneuver that emotion but i think like there's other practices. I know primal therapy was an example of that. Well, it's really trying to draw anger. You mean like primal scream therapy? Primal or? scream therapy, yeah, sure. right. And there's been some dubious results in that because some of that is actually, you're actually just patterning more anger neurochemically in your brain. Oh. Like you're actually drawing it in and kind of grooving that, um, the way that those neurochemicals fire yeah. to, to a greater degree. And I guess that was one, one question of, Clearly, you have to acknowledge, you have to see, and maybe let it breathe to a certain degree. But there's a balance, I think, between doing that and then also overly indulging sure. some of these more negative tendencies. Oh, most definitely. Well, so anger is an interesting example. Um, it's a complicated subject. I'm not going to go too deeply into it. But one of the themes in the book is um, we're very emotional creatures. We think that we're think the thinking animal. We're actually an emotional animal. Emotions sort of govern 95% of our behavior. Um, but the way the brain is wired, we don't have any direct access to our emotions. Emotions are basically, animals have emotions. They're basically hormonal uh, responses, things that are released into our blood. They're also electrical, chemical things that are happening with the brain. Um, 
And they, the emotions that are stimulated, let's say through hormonally, occur in a part of the brain that's not um, directly linked to the, the frontal cortex, to our reasoning powers. It's very hard to translate an emotion into words. Um, and when, when we experience it, oftentimes we're not even conscious of it because it's not something that we're aware of. So we often don't know why we're angry. We don't know why we're depressed. We don't know why we feel excited. Sometimes we do. Most often we don't. Mm -hmm. And the reasons you think you're angry are never actually usually correct. You're usually finding something in your immediate circumstances that you think triggered that anger, but actually something deeper inside of you, some pattern from your early child or wherever is the real trigger point. And somebody in the present or some circumstance may have triggered it. Yeah, it gives you the flimsiest amount of evidence that you yes. can use your logical brain, which doesn't know what to do with this anger, which is yes. erupting from a primordial place and says, yeah. oh, it's because you texted me in this way or yeah. you did this thing and that's why I'm so angry. When exactly. Really it's not the case. Exactly. So what I'm trying to say is if you know that, if you kind of, let's say just dealing with anger, if you know that now, I made it aware, I've drill, drilled that into your brain. What happens, because it's happened to me as I write the book, this changed me. Um, when you feel anger, you stop and you take a step back and you go, now, wait a minute. Why am I angry? Mm -hmm. what, what's going on here? Now, 90% of the time, you're not going to figure it out. But that stepping back is extremely powerful and extremely important because it means you just simply don't act on your impulses. You realize there might be another cause. You realize that maybe I don't know why I'm angry. And it causes you to, to, to not indulge, as you say, use the word, in that, in that emotion. Mm. It gives you more control. Uh, anger is an addiction. Uh, I talk in the yeah. in the aggressive chapter, and I'm thinking of someone, uh, I don't want to get into politics, but I think of someone like a Trump or people who are on Twitter who have to come. It's an addiction. Yeah. There is a hormonal addiction element in anger. Um, it creates a high, actually. People think that uh, aggressive people aren't very happy, but actually aggressive people can be very happy. They're getting constantly high. They they need that jolt of anger. It keeps the, I don't forget if it's dopamine or whatever, which one it is. Norepinephrine and all these cocktail yeah. of hormones that fire together to create the feeling of anger. Yeah. It gives them something to live for. They're, they're, they're feeding off of it and they're not in control. They have no understanding. So I'm never talking really in this book about indulging in your in your naughty desires or whatever, except maybe your power sex thing that you were mentioned and go <laughs> yeah. ahead. I have no problem with that. But I'm not telling you just indulge and become a, you know, an ape or whatever. I want you to be aware of yourself. Yeah. I want consciousness. I want light. There's a book about throwing light on everything. So if you know that the anger is like that, you're not going to indulge in it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the areas that I think we all need to throw light on is our drive for power, you know? And I think you make a really compelling case, which is a reminder of that that pet power is probably, I don't know, would you say it's the fundamental human drive? Well, it depends on how you define power. Um, so people have kind of raked me over the coals over the years for my naughty first book, The 48 Laws of Power, <laughs> you know, like they think it's ugly and they associate it with Hitler, etc. I'm not talking about power like that. I'm talking about it in a more philosophical sense. The idea that um, you want a degree of control of your life. You want to impose yourself on the world. You want to have 
an effect on other people. So the sense that you, let's just use that word instead of power because people freak out sometimes. If you feel like I can have no effect on my children, on my spouse, on my boss, on my colleagues, you are miserable. It is something humans cannot endure. I don't care how great you think you are. If you want to feel like you can influence and have an effect upon the people around you. So, and it's almost like because we primarily we are a cause that wants an effect. Like, yeah, you could almost say like a bowling ball wants to knock down pins. Like, yeah, that's what it's made for. We as beings in the manifest want to have an effect on the manifest. Yeah, and. We want to generally have as big an effect as we're capable. That's living up to our potential. Yes. You know, and so, and people have this, there's this, you're right though, there is this connotation about power because yeah. power has been misused. So is money. money. But inherently, power and money are completely neutral. They are like energetic forces that could be implied just as equally for good or bad. Right. They're, they're neutral. And I thought that was the beauty of all of your works, seduction, power, is you're not adding in your own mor morality to it and saying right. like, well, let's not cover this subject. Let's say, let's just cover this subject in its totality right. and allow you to express your morality as you see fit through your own heart yeah. through that. Yeah, and I like to bring things back to evolution, to our earliest years. I find comfort and explanation in that for some reason. Um, and if you look at our earliest ancestors, um, we were a very weak, helpless species compared to leopards, compared to the predators in our original environment. Couldn't run very fast, not nearly as strong as a chimpanzee. I don't know if you've ever gone close to chimpanzee. They are strong, 10 times stronger than we are. I've watched um, Planet of the Apes. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I don't know. It could be. Planet of the Apes is fairly accurate, I guess. Um, we, we couldn't run very fast. We lived in an environment that was very dangerous. Yep. And this is occurring over hundreds of thousands of years. And so we managed to get some effect on the environment to control the environment to the point now where we have complete 100 almost complete 100 percent over the over the planet um so we were we were driven for the for 99.9 percent .9 of our evolution to impose ourselves on the world to get some control to not feel so helpless to not feel as weak as we actually are so that is so wired into your system. Uh, there's no way you can, not even Gandhi could get rid of it. Well, and also with the tribal dynamic, we didn't thrive one person, lone wolf, right. braving the elements. We thrived in our social dynamics and exclusion from the tribe often meant death. Yeah. So power within a group of people was yeah. also just as equally linked to survival oh, yeah. as you know power over the environment. So these social dynamics of rising to power amongst your peers, like, that's what kept you alive. Right. You know, so that's deep. It's deep. You can't get rid of it. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, you find this in chimps. Um, they're very much interested in hierarchy and rank. Uh, the, there's everything revolves around the alpha male. I'm not to say that we're exactly like chimps, but I was shot. I once was in Sydney, Australia for a book tour and I went to the zoo there. They have a very nice zoo, mm -hmm. much more humane. I hate zoos normally. And they had this insane chimpanzee compound where the chimpanzees basically have quite a lot of room to do their thing and it's 
pretty open. And I stood there for like two hours watching the chimps. And it, it looks like, they look like humans. It looked like any boardroom in any office <laughs> with the CEO and all the minions walking behind him and following him around. I, w I worked uh, on the board of American Apparel for many years. That's where I met Ryan Holiday. Mm -hmm. um, and the CEO, Dove Charney, was this kind of alpha male chimp. And I would see him walking the office and there would be like five people following him, just like I saw in that Sydney Zoo. Um, and so th these are animals, and it's more men, male than female, and that's been shown with chimps. Uh, are very hierarchy and rank uh, oriented, constantly seeing themselves in comparison to, to other people, to other chimps in relation to the alpha male. That hasn't changed and that's never going to change. Um, that's another element in power. So it's not, um, it, I try to rescue that word from all of its negative connotations. And I'm trying to say um, that you want power in your life. You have ambition. It's better to say it, say it out loud, admit it to yourself, and find some way to channel it uh, productively. Because undoubtedly power or anger or any of the, or aggression can be used negatively. Mm -hmm. uh, but usually when you would, are aware of something, it doesn't have that power over you. Yeah, reconciling our own need for power and our own desire for power is is like one of the most crucial things. You know, I, I travel in a lot of different circles, and some of the more spiritual circles you get to, there's generally a, a negative connotation surrounding money, particularly yeah. and power as well. But this, then you watch what happens when they get anywhere close to either power or money, and all the all the screws come loose, like all the gears start breaking, and you right. see all of these unconscious repressed elements the shadow side of themselves right. that they haven't acknowledged right. just come rearing out and you're like whoa right. where was the you know where was that noble you know saint-like figure that i saw a minute ago when there's a couple zeros on yeah. the line here yeah. that whole thing that whole thing went because they were unable again too much shame yeah to look at the guilt they felt over having these yeah. basic human tendencies and and that's you know that's the unacceptable position right you know for the human being is to not acknowledge where we come from like we all have all of this shit all of this shadow yeah the integrated human acknowledges it say oh yeah all that's there yeah now what am i going to do with it what games am i going to play with it how am i going to affect the world yeah it reminds me of that great quote from robert caro and his lb lyndon johnson bios it's power doesn't corrupt it just reveals who you are yeah. So when you have power, it kind of reveals who you are. Your true character comes out. If you are actually an integrated person and you're comfortable with yourself, when you get power, it'll show. Mm -hmm. You might have moments where you abuse it a bit, but generally, and if you're not, if you are somebody that suddenly becomes extremely abusive, that's, that's who you are. That's part of your character. It's suddenly now been showing to the world, whereas before it was kind of hidden. Yeah. I remember I did a, you know, part of my own personal practices with the traditional plant medicines. And one of the first experiences I had was an ayahuasca experience. I think it was the fourth time I drank. And this big dragon made of smoke uh, comes in, fills up the whole vision space in my mind. And he says, it goes down in a really deep voice, says, you want power? And I go, oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yes. And I you know, had enough truth in me at that point to be like, yes. And he says, why? And I go, wow. oh, well, to help people. And it goes, 
are you sure? <laughs> and then it takes me through all the different points in my life where I had used power to my own personal advantage. So sexual opportunity, yeah. you know, friendship opportunity, luxury opportunity, pleasure opportunity. Yeah. And it was this really interesting lesson that, yes, I do have a call to service. I do have a call to make the world better, to help yeah. people. And there is that genuine aspect. But there's also my own selfish motives sure. and my own selfish things. And, and it it showed me all of those things. And, and so it just divorced me of this idea of like, oh yeah, I only want power for the good. Right, right, No, right. I want it and I'm gonna do good things with it, but I'm also, I'm gonna do better things with it because I'm aware that I wanna do yeah, my own yeah. selfish shit with it. Yeah. Well, what was that voice coming from? It's coming from, it's from this side. giant dragon made of I smoke. I know, but where is it? It's like <laughs> somewhere in your psyche. That's a good question. Some higher, wiser part of me or some actual ethereal dragon, I'm not sure. Um, but I think there's two competing theses there that i've never done ayahuasca so i uh, i'd have a theory of it if i had i did yeah. a lot of drugs when i was younger so a lot of lsd and peyote and everything um what was i gonna say i you know the book has been a little bit hard on me myself because i've had to look at myself no doubt um so i'm like i'm writing a chapter on narcissism and but like, you know what man i guess i'm kind of a narcissist <laughs> You know, it took me months for me. It sort of sunk in. I first was kind of resistant, and it, you know, because I, uh, I I've known a lot of narcissists, and I don't really necessarily like the quality. It seems something. Um, there's a lot of negativity to me personally because I've had to deal with it in people close to me. But I had to kind of come to a reckoning and see, yeah, you're not as good as you think you are. Sometimes your motives are a little more complicated. Sometimes they're not the best motives and you are, can be pretty self-absorbed. And there are signs in you in your behavior that you, Robert, have moments of being a raging narcissist. And maybe, I think I was more narcissistic when I was younger, in my teens and 20s. And maybe I'm fooling myself, but I think I've gotten less of a mood beyond it. But still, it was a reckoning. Now, you would say to yourself at first glance, I don't want to think like myself like that. I don't want to have that shit going on in my head. I, I like having my kind of self-opinion of being this sort of Gandhi-like person. <laughs> but I tell you, in the end, it's very much better for you. You feel relief. Mm. You feel like, ah, I'm letting go of something. I'm acknowledging it. I can look at myself. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Where, being a hypocrite, it kind of wears you down. You don't realize yeah. it, but it drains your energy. And so uh, I, I find it sort of felt a kind of a liberating feeling. I, I'm expressing that to readers who might think that they don't want to put their feet in that, wade into that pond. But I'm telling you, as someone who lived through the book and had to go through each chapter and see it in myself, it actually is, is a healthy thing. Sure. Because if you don't do that, then you're only going to appreciate and love and feel worthy of love as part as part of the human that you are. Yeah. You know, but if you bring all of that in and reconcile and say, okay, here's my narcissism, here's my, here's all these tendencies, and it's okay. I'm human. You know, yeah. I can love all these things. I can choose to be better. I can be a little bit better tomorrow because of this awareness. Yeah. And help temper that and help be yeah. mindful of that. And then you can actually have this complete sense of okay, I, I appreciate myself, you right. know, and then that's a way better 
place to operate from than just okay i appreciate this aspect of myself and the other part that's the darkness i think we try to externalize and we have for so long we try to externalize all these dark forces like this isn't me i was possessed or i think you were something came over me you know what i mean like well why was that something that's what politicians and people in public they're always saying it wasn't me something came over me you know like okay right um you know that's one of the primitive people had that feeling the spirits the ethers the something outside of me that is causing me to do this yeah and the ancient greeks who weren't so primitive they thought it was like things from the gods like ate they called it or thumos where you literally were possessed by a spirit and that's what your anger was so it's very human we do that and we also do blame we externalize it by blaming other people they made me angry. Mm-hmm. They were the aggressive one. You're justifying yeah. it so that yeah. it's all fair. Or you're, you're projecting it. Yeah, just yeah. Same thing, projection in a way of yeah. justifying it so that you remain perfect and blameless. Yeah. So you can avoid the harsh, you know, eye of the judge that wants yeah. to hold you to this ridiculous standard that yeah. we have of perfection. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. never we're never going we're never going to make it. No. We're always yeah. going to have <laughs> we're always gonna have that mixed bag and the sooner we realize that the fucking better off we're going to be and that's the beauty of it yeah because i i was sort of seeing this we humans i i use that expression a lot in the book but we're at like an inflection point uh, in history it's a really interesting moment because we've been in denial about ourselves forever um religion had a part of it i have great love of religion i'm not uh someone who who has this beef and thinks all bad things come from religion but the notion that we are descended from angels that we're not really from primates uh, or whatever or that um our ancestors there was a myth starting in romanticism in the 18th century that our ancestors were actually very peaceful and loving and vegetarians and then civilization kind of ruined us we've always been in denial of our nature um and now we're at a moment where we have all of this, I talk about in the introduction, to all the science. We have neuroscience, which is just mind-blowing what it's showing about how we are, what our brains are really like. And we have archaeology and anthropology with all these incredible discoveries. I think you, I don't know if it was you who turned me onto that book, War Before Civilization. Mm, I, I think you think did. So. All right, well. Anyway, this showed anthropology that our ancestors weren't these peace-loving vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Um, all these great things from science, from thinkers that are illuminating who we are. It's there. So now we can maybe finally come to terms with this and realize who we actually are because we've been living with this opinion of who we are that's not real. And maybe if that reaches a tipping point and it becomes something more generalized in society, something great could happen. But I don't think something can until we come to this reckoning. I think this book is going to force, you know, it it will force every reader into a reckoning, which I think is a beautiful place to be in because in that comes deeper understanding. You know, you use the word in the book, you called them honesty mongers. And I yep. go, oh no! Yeah. <laughs> I read that. I read that section. I was like, oh god. Well, I thought you yourself. Were well, I was like, maybe that's what I am. Maybe I'm an honesty monger, and maybe yeah. that's my way of, in my own power play, to get to this. And so I had to like really sit with that and be like, what is honesty, and what is honesty 
mongering, what is using honesty as a strategy right. to actually achieve power. And then, you know, so I, you have to go through this whole reflection and find right. out how do you fare? You know, how do you right. fare under this line of questioning? You right. know, is all of this just my own way to be manipulative using the changing times and the rules or is this coming from an authentic place right. and that's that's a beautiful place to be in and if you don't read something like that and go uh oh right. <laughs> you know at some point and yeah. do the work well, well you know when you're when you're with your body uh i'm an exercise freak as you are mostly swimming but i do other things uh you realize that resistance is good mm -hmm. it's good like to feel some pain it's good to realize you're not so good at this moment so that you can you know go strive harder to get to this point that you want you have ideals you have goals and you can be honest with yourself you can look in the mirror and see i i got, I got some fat around here and <laughs> I, I i'm not so built up as i thought i'm going to work at it you know yeah that honesty and then makes you really possibly excel and get kind of the the physical uh well-being that you want well that's the same thing mentally without that honesty you're not going to develop as a human so it's the same thing as exercise you have to come to terms with some of the fat on around your belly or your honesty your problems your power things that are negative before you can start to improve them everything's about self-improvement we love self-help and self-improvement but none of that's ever going to happen unless you like realize you know who you, you alter your thinking, change who you are, change your whole way of looking at things. So much of the self-help genre, which I'm classified in, is dishonest because it's fooling you. It's all about, you know, inspirational stuff and you're good, you're great. To, you know, um, it's a con in, in, a, in a way. And really self-help and improvement should illuminate more of that honest aspect of who you really are and maybe you're not so great and maybe that's will be the spur for improving yourself yeah absolutely the other aspect of this whole thing is you know you use the word mental judo at a certain point and this is protection against a world that is both consciously and unconsciously you know involving practices that are manipulative you know yeah. and can steer you down a wrong path and you know i've told this story countless times before you know, in a toxic work environment, your book, 48 Laws of Power, helped me understand my boss, which helped oh, alleviate a massive, a massive depression that I'd, well, that I'd been in. Can you, you want to briefly remind me of this? Well, it was the very first, I kept doing things that were excellent and I would get punished for doing those things excellent. And so my whole paradigm of what, what do I do now? Because if I do something really good, I get punished at my job so do I fail? And that's should my goal be. Never outshine the master. Chapter yeah. one. Yeah. Never outshine the master. I read chapter one and I go, oh, I got to make the idea his idea. I got to <laughs> present the plans in this way. And then, and then all of a sudden it became a game that I, I was aware of the rules and I was aware of what was going on. And it still wasn't a great place, but it allowed me enough time. Yeah. I was able to bide the time, stick with it avoid the really toxic elements from developing thinking it was me thinking yeah. the whole projecting this on the whole world understanding this is a specific case yeah have forgiveness for that and then allow myself to go through build enough time and money that i could go out and then start my own company and wow. learn from the lessons of that so it was like this great inoculation so that's been one from 48 laws of power and then other ones from your laws of seduction you know i've been in relationships and noticing push-pull tendencies like of yours 
of mine or somebody else's yeah. in, in a relationship like oh here they go you know lavishing affection and then withdrawing completely mm-hmm. and i'm obsessed with that person well that might be that they're using that's a classic seduction you know yeah. technique yeah the push pull the pain pleasure and, yeah. and i was like i've read about that so maybe that's what's going on and maybe this isn't the greatest person on the planet and maybe right. i don't love them that much maybe right. i'm just being manipulated here right 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 you know and so that 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 ability to see what other people are doing yeah and say okay now let me reflect upon what i'm feeling yeah and come to terms with it i mean that's invaluable in this book is just another it's like combining so many of those elements because human nature affects everything seduction is a limited part of human nature power is a part of it all of these things are part of it but human nature is like the composite of all of it yeah well that's the i mean uh, it brings up a good point because the way we've been talking people might get the impression that the book's really just about looking at yourself but a, a hu- most of the book really is also a, a way of looking at uh, the people you have to deal with as a social animal in your work world and your relationships to make you better at kind of deciphering people's behavior um and one of the major themes is having to deal with toxic people and I'm not trying to say that there are a lot of them out there. There's a lot of semi-toxic people, but the really toxic types, maybe 5%, I don't know, I haven't, you can't do the sure. math, but let's just say that, one in 20. So if you're in a group, in a, your office, there'll probably be 20 people there usually. There'll be one, there'll be one <laughs> asshole, right? There will be, inevitably. Yeah. There might be two, but there's usually one or maybe two. And they cause inordinate amount of pain. One person can ruin the lives of, I mean, you know, I I don't want to get into politics, but you just look at Donald Trump, one person, and the obsessive quality that person can have over millions of people. Uh, You know, I'm reading a biography of Joseph Stalin. One man is responsible for the death of 80 million people. Now, I'm not saying your boss is of the level of a Stalin or that your boss is necessarily bad, but you in life are going to deal with toxic people constantly with the semi-toxic type. And maybe every five years with the really toxic type, they're going to cross your path. Just bet on it, bank on it. And they can cause a lot of collateral damage that you're not aware of. You internalize things, you blame yourself, you get obsessed by it, you come home thinking about them. Uh, You just can't get out of the trap of the drama and the emotions that they've hooked you into. So this book, I'm trying, I really, really do wanna help people. I'm not writing this, I really am thinking about you deeply on that level. I want you to be able to recognize these types so that you reverse the power dynamic. Um, If you see a toxic person for who he or she is, if you understand how they operate, if you understand why they're manipulating, if you're able to see that they're not nearly as powerful as they present themselves to be, if you can see the wounded, whiny little child Mm -hmm. that's actually hiding behind the blustery front, man, it just changes everything. It does. You can do what you did. You can stay in there a couple more years knowing you'll get out, but you don't internalize it. You can even forgive them. You can do, you have options. Your life changes. So it's a huge part of the book because a constant theme in history are these one out of 20 people that just make life miserable for everyone else. How do you deal with that? And then for the 19 out of the other 20 people that all have some element of this, some lack of integration 
which is going to be played out in some subconscious motivation which makes them less in control and less yeah. you know less part of their higher self and more into their into their lower self which yeah. is the distinction that that you use higher being those feelings of greater compassion and and altruism and love and kindness yeah. for others and the lower being the more protective you know aggressive competitive kind yeah. of elements of our nature and and it's just yeah so for the extreme cases absolutely vital it's like a lifesaver and yeah. then for everybody else you know it's just being able to codify that and figure it out you know again like one of the other seductive traits you talk about is the mirror effect right and i was i was with somebody who what i wanted to see from them was their truest their higher self right but she was a master seductress oh so it was this weird dynamic where actually to seduce me mm -hmm. she actually had to show me truly her best characteristics but she was still doing it because it was a seduction because that's what would work the best that's what i wanted to see and that's what i was kind of coming at it for and so she was a master of showing that and i was like oh my what, god what was she showing just just give me a little detail a desire like a desire to be of service for humanity for herself uh -huh. to the greater good the uh -huh. ability to show love and vulnerability i see you know these like higher these higher things but as soon as my gaze would turn away the true human nature i see uh, which was really destructive by nature had some very destructive elements of in, wanting to watch her. the world and yeah uh -huh. wanting to watch the world burn yeah to a certain degree i would turn the gaze away and then those elements would come out and be like whoa what happened and and it wasn't until years later i was like oh she was using the mirror effect yeah. showing me what i wanted to see which happened to be the truest probably that part of her that was good yeah. that's what i wanted to see but it wasn't the full picture but it wasn't the full picture and often what happens in these moments which i talk a lot about in the book is uh you see the other side of the person and um you don't really want to acknowledge it yeah. you want to keep holding on to it so you say oh they were just that was just the moment they, <laughs> they they're not really like that some you know maybe something pushed them into being that way maybe it was even me you have a reason for wanting to see the certain kind of quality in another person and you will tend to hold on to it and i'm telling you in the book when a person reveals their shadow when they do that thing that makes them say uh, something came over me you're actually seeing their real self mm. you're seeing more of their real self than you normally see in day-to-day -day life the shadow when that politician is caught you know fooling around with an 18 year old intern in the office that's really who he is that's something very vital reveal revealing about him reve that reveals something about his character it's not a one-off thing it's not something that just oh it just happened once you know or something came over me no it's there something very real is coming out and it, it really can help you understand people without having to judge them i'm trying to make you you know, so it's good to judge the toxic types and get away from them. But most cases, it's better to not be so judgmental. Well, it's almost mm -hmm. uh, you judge, you say more, be aware. You be know, aware. Just be aware. That's just the right be, way to be say Be conscious it. of it. And because yeah. I don't think the necessity to judge when you actually understand human nature, you just say, oh, well, this is how they're responding with yeah. these repressed, you know, they've repressed this. It's coming out in this way. They're unconscious of this yeah. in a certain way. And then you can ultimately get to a state where you're not as vulnerable. 
yeah. you know, from those from those particular situations. I think also for me, and to go back and use that personal example, there was a failure in my own grandiosity to think, oh, I can change this person. I'm right. in such a way, and I'm so great that I can change anybody, and I can bring out this quality by looking at this quality and calling it forward, and, and here I go. You know, and that was, again, my own grandiosity, which is one of the laws you talk about. It's bite, also, me on, bite me in the ass. It also means to go back to the art of seduction. Uh, when you think that, you've been seduced. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. when the woman thinks, ah, he's a rake, but I'm going to be the one that's going to reform him. <laughs> She's been seduced by a rake. You know, yeah. That's exactly what he wants. And for people who don't know what a rake is, what's a rake? A rake is a man. I have, uh, in the sedu- art of seduction, I have nine seductive types. The rake is a man who's a master at seducing women. He tends to have a slightly feminine quality himself. He understands women. He really likes women. He's not one of these men that's just after sex. He actually enjoys a female presence, but he can never be satisfied with one woman. It has to be one after the other after the other. So for six weeks, he will love bomb you and with and the attention will be extremely seductive but it doesn't last because well for various reasons that i discuss in the book that's the that's a rake yeah and it's i think a lot of men listening can identify that tendency and i've had some things thrust in my face to identify those tendencies as well and it becomes from needing the validation of the attraction yeah. rather than actually the enjoyment of the experience itself like you need to suck up that external validation because you don't feel good enough about yourself you don't feel like right. you're worthy or you're a man enough or whatever so you need to get their submission love surrender yeah all packaged as capital v validation externally yeah. and as soon as you've got that it's like ah, i've used you up see ya and it and that's that's completely true and it's also like like anger it's like an addiction you don't want the reality you want the illusion that comes from the seductive process it's like a hunt she seems to be someone if you spent instead of six weeks six months with her you would suddenly see the reality isn't maybe necessarily uh, so exciting and you'd be forced to come to terms with that but if you're only there for the short term you get this little burst and you get to imagine that this woman is something more than she actually is mm-hmm. so that's another element of it. i know personally because i was a rake so mm-hmm. i'm not just spouting abstract knowledge here I, in my 20s i'm a reformed rake <laughs> um so i'm not speaking from you know i'm speaking from experience and i think i think that's the beauty of this everybody every story you you tell and everything you say like you got to be able to see a little bit of yourself sure. in all of these things if you're actually doing the work to become an integrated human like sure. don't read these things and say oh i would never do that no nah, yeah. nah, i would never do that <laughs> you know like you got to look and be like oh this is where i have kind of done that to yeah. a certain degree maybe not to that extreme level because right. you're obviously telling some extreme stories of these incredible figures that have right made their name throughout history and obviously they're going to be doing pretty dramatic things right but see those tendencies in all the different types and like recognize that as self and often you will notice uh, if you get older if you're in your 30s or 40s that more of this slightly extreme behavior occurred when you were younger um for whatever reason i don't necessarily want to go into but you'll see like i can remember you know i once i was stay, I was like 22 years old. I was staying with these people in f- south of France and they let me stay in their apartment. 
And I just must have racked up like a $500 telephone bill and just left them with it. And I would never do that now. I mean, that back then, that was probably like $2,000 now. Sure. I would never do that now. I, I would think, God, man, what we, what? it's almost like a different person. And I have to come to terms with that. And they got really angry and they came to LA and they called my parents. And I didn't, even, I was so unaware. I was like shocked. I thought they were calling to, to be friends again, et cetera. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware. Usually you'll find like little nuggets like that when you were younger, where you did behavior that was really kind of insensitive. And that's part of you is buried inside of you now. You know, there's still part of me now could, could be like that. So you'll tend to see something, you know, or your relationships with women and th uh, your, your, your seductive patterns or everything like that. You'll tend to see something a little more extreme uh, when you're younger. It can be very illuminating. And there's, you know, there's this tendency to like, if you see a sandcastle and it's a beautiful sandcastle, you're going to have two competing parts of yourself one is wow that's a beautiful sandcastle and the other part of you is like i kind of want to kick it <laughs> you know what i mean and like i think when you're younger those forces are like they're grappling with each other yeah, more true. and, and as we get older way. it's like there's more of that 95 percent or 98 percent is like wow that's really a lot of labor and a lot of i really appreciate that and only that two percent is like <laughs> i just love to smash it you know? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I would have, <laughs> and I probably did smash it when I was younger. Yeah, you know? we all did. There was these yeah. little things that we would see, and we would crush them. And whether yeah. it was, you know, like uh, getting your first BB gun. And I remember I shot a lizard one time, and I was like, oh. "Why did I shoot that lizard? Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I just." But it was there, and I had a gun, and I, I love lizards, and I still did it, <laughs> like regardless to see if I could, you yeah, know. And then yeah. you're like dealing with a dead lizard, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. "What I? What have I done?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but these things—they're just so much more raw, and we haven't explored them to a certain right. degree. And I think that's like you know, ultimately, how we learn as long as we're introspective and aware, and start yeah. to learn the lessons that we can. Yeah. Um. I have a chapter on, on envy, um, which is an extremely human quality. And what it. And just, to, just to say, so I mentioned earlier that there was talking to Jay Shetty, there was one emotion that was in the Vedic tradition is the most useless because it can't be actually transmuted into anything in that state. And that is envy. That's the one thing that they said you have to actually take an intermediate step to move that into something else because it's actually one of the most like disempowering emotions that you can get well um, I i'm not necessarily disagreeing with that but i'm probably saying it in different in a different way because i mm -hmm. do believe i make the point that you can actually channel envy um maybe it's not channeling maybe it's being aware it is kind of channeling it mm -hmm. um the, the the root of envy is very primal um it comes from our constant need to compare ourselves to other people. Um, primitive tribes, hunter-gatherers, had terrible problems with envy. We know this from anthropologists who studied hunter-gatherer cultures that survived to the 19th and 20th centuries. It was a real issue. If somebody got more food than another tribal member, people got really angry or bitter. If a chief got, started to accumulate a little too much power, if someone was given a gift, and the other people weren't, the whole band tribe could just completely fall apart. So they created elaborate rituals to avoid envy. Um, 
the gift giving. If someone gave you a gift, you had to immediately give them back to give it to somebody else. You couldn't keep it or you were going to get in fucking trouble. You're going to get killed. So, you know, you had these rituals. Wow. Um, nobody was able to accumulate too much power. Uh, chiefs were constantly being rotated. So primitive people recognized the very dangerous elements in envy. So it's extremely human with the idea of we are always comparing ourselves to other people. And envy is particularly uh, strikes you with those who are somewhat similar to you. So you're going to feel, if, you're a writer, if I'm a writer and I suddenly hear that Ryan got a great advance for his book and it's doing really well, even though I love Ryan, he's a great friend, mm. I'm going to feel a pang of envy because mm. I'm a writer and man, he got more money than me. <laughs> and he was my apprentice <laughs> and you know, and he's like getting more, uh, he's more popular than I am. I can't avoid it. You're going to get envy. Sure. Whereas if it's like a, an engineer and something, I'm not going to feel that. Or if LeBron I'm, scores 50, you're like, yeah, exactly. okay, LeBron, exactly. <laughs> good, good for you. Exactly. You know, I'm not playing basketball. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, you're going to feel uh, this more. It's inevitable that you will feel it with somebody sure. who, who who is in your near same area, same kind of line, or a sibling, very powerful among siblings. And nobody ever acknowledges that they feel envy. It's such a toxic emotion, as you talked about with the Vedic sense. Um, no one says, "Oh man, I've." You know, I actually was, I'm actually envious of you. We use that as in a colloquial expression, but the true envy where you're really kind of bitter and you resent it, you never acknowledge it. In fact, you're often not aware that you're feeling envy because what you will feel is anger. You will say, that person didn't deserve such good things. Why did Ryan get that much money? He must have bullshitted his way into it, you know, kind of thing. You'll, you'll, you'll find a reason that sort of conceals the envy from you oh, and, or turn it inward you know when i in my moments of feeling yeah. envy it'll i'll typically go immediately well that's because i'm worthless and i'm and i'll go into a very oh. internally focused anger but you're right like oh. i think anger is the next step it's just yeah. where, do, where do you put it do you put it to the person who has it or do you put it to yourself because you're not good enough yeah in, in that way so but it's, it's going to go somewhere yeah i never thought of it that's interesting i hope i covered that aspect in the book um, but, you know, how can you channel it? Well, first of all, it's very good to realize that, that you have this emotion yeah. so that it doesn't control you and you, you kind of come to terms with it. But you, I actually think you can channel it. How do you channel it? Well, you, now that you realize it, you go, um, well, I'm going to use that to make myself better. Mm. I'm going to, instead of feeling resentful that Ryan got this, bigger advance than me. I hope he doesn't hear this and think suddenly come in and suddenly <laughs> think he's thinks, he's gonna, <laughs> think he's thinks that I'm actually saying something real, which I'm not. Um, instead of like, ah, damn, Ryan, man, I'm a, I, you know what? I better, I'm going to make my next book much better. I'm going to get uh -huh. a bigger advance. Uh -huh. You can, instead of being envious, you can like emulate people. You can try and compete. You can try and get better. You can try and up your game. You can try and excel more so that, you know, you channel that comparing mechanism into something that spurs you onto something great. Do you make a distinction between envy and jealousy? Well, jealousy is something that involves three people, right? Uh -huh. So you can't just be jealous of Ryan. Um, you're jealous of the fact that he has this incredible girlfriend that's, 
you know, that you've lusted after that's just better than anything you've ever had. So you're, oh, it, it always involves a triangle. Mm. There's always a third person involved. So there's a romantic component to jealousy typically that? Typically, but you could be, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm, I don't have examples in my mind where you would be jealous of Jealous some, of a sibling or a child maybe. Maybe you're jealous that someone has a child who went to Yale or something like that. Yeah, or um, you were jealous that somebody is getting the attention that you should be getting mm -hmm. kind of thing. Whereas envy um, can be just involve one person. There's no necessarily a triangle. Yeah. This is the classic definition of it. Um, but envy is also something very generalized. Um, and it's a real problem in the world today with social media. Uh, I have a huge component of the book. I try to show that our most primitive sides are actually being fed and enlarged by social media. These forces that are very powerful and primal. Uh, I'm not down on all aspects of social media, far from it, but it tends to bring out, and envy is a, social media is a force multiplier Mm -hmm. of envy because you're aware of what everybody else has that you don't have um and so that's you know never of of just two people there that's like you know envy so jealousy isn't necessarily a problem on social media but envy is very much powerful yeah you know i, I think in in relationships you know you notice those that jealousy can be a it's a wild erratic powerful force and and i do see how that you know how you have to channel it into the positive way to channel it is into self-betterment yeah you know into a certain way but you can also get skewed in that i remember in college my girlfriend left me for a guy who was playing in the nfl professional football wow. so i went back and i looked at his combine scores which is the statistics they use to draft a player in the nfl and i just found out how many times he could bench press 225 pounds and i made it my wow. sole goal in life there you go. to bench press more than him there but i go. was so obsessed with that one narrow thing that i kind of missed the point but i guess at least i was doing something productive instead of just and, sitting and, in the sitting in my room and did it help you like get over here and a little, bit. a little bit i mean it, when i was listening to pantera on my cd walkman or whatever was available at that time and i was lifting weights and i got it up there and i beat his record there was some kind of rush yeah. of satisfaction yeah. like yeah you know screw you i can lift yeah. more weight than you you know well, there you go that's a good that's a good strat i i commend that strategy yeah. i mean the other ways i i, I mention are You'll envy someone, and if actually, if you got to know them better and their circumstances, you would see that actually you don't need to envy them. So, like this football player, if you if you go through a thought process or you did some research, you would see he's actually kind of miserable. Mm -hmm. He's not. He's like his career will be over in three years after he gets a concussion, and then where will he be? Yeah. You know, he has no future, no career. The woman who left you for him, she actually wasn't that great. These are the thought processes you can go through to kind of mute um, your your envy. You know, yep. uh, I, I talk in the book about um, Jacqueline Onassis and you know all the incredible men she was married to, JFK, and then Aristotle Onassis. And then when you read her biography, you realize she was miserable. The life with these men was a nightmare. There was no reason to envy it. And oftentimes wealthy people are very unhappy. This is part of the thing, things that you can do. The other thing yeah, is- Collapsing reality, you know, collapsing the fantasy back to reality. Yeah. And understanding that we're all in this human condition. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I was a child, 
um, there was this family relatives that seemed so much happier than our family. I have a great family. I have a sister that I love very much. But this seemed like the tip of the greatest, happiest family with a really loving mother. And my sister was always talking about, God damn, I wish we'd been in that family. And then, you know, as I got to know them years later, I, it wasn't so, it wasn't rosy at all. And all of their children have ended up extremely messed up. Um, and that's sort of what happens when you get closer. You realize that what you're envying is actually not so great. What is the, what is the, it's almost like there's a part of human nature that multiplies envy though. That like, instead of, instead of, even when you have evidence to the contrary, like, hey, maybe that actually isn't so good. Or maybe like, you know, my girlfriend's, you know, my girlfriend's lover, it wasn't so great, but but the mind will actually go to the extreme. Oh, it was incredible. It was the best thing ever. They're having the time of their life. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it all along. It's just one huge fantasy from morning till dawn. They probably haven't stopped having sex for 14 hours. You know, like the mind goes to this thing and it's just, it'll create this massive mountain. Yeah. Like where it's this weird way that we like attack ourselves. Yeah. And compound something that could be really reasonable. Well, um, now that you've said that, if you had gone, if you had said that to yourself back then, now you wouldn't have felt it that way. You would have brought some light to it. You would have yeah. realized, oh, this is oh probably- here I go again, compounding it, creating yeah. a fantasy that's far greater, far exceeds any reality that's actually there. Yeah, because in that sense, by doing that. Um, I don't really know. I mean, I've never actually done that before. My whole, my whole <laughs> well, tendency. I'm like, I, I'm <laughs> like kind Michael of Jordan of doing that. That's kind of masochistic. <laughs> yes, you know? it is. It is. You feel horrible. You feel horrible. <laughs> we, we have then, to... I somehow, there's some part of me that wants to cope with the worst possible scenario. Oh, it's a... I think. That's you know a, what I mean? So you've got, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you have masochistic tendencies. In that regard, absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I almost feel like, I have to, I'm so afraid of that thing. I have to accept that thing as reality. And then, and then if I'm okay with that, then there's nothing left. Well, you would end up being okay with it after you, if you thought that they <laughs> were mean, having great sex for 14 yeah, hours a day. Eventually I get to a state uh -huh. of peace and then uh -huh. I can back it down from there. But it's uh -huh. almost like if I don't, if I try to stick to reality and then my mind will try and make it worse, I almost have to accept the worst case scenario, which ultimately puts a lot a lot more uh -huh. negative feeling in my system immediately yeah. but somehow my brain thinks that it's ultimately going to alleviate it long term when probably i could just stick with reality yeah and be be a little bit better off well as someone who i meditate every day uh and i, I do zen meditation and the focus of it is um that we thinking is can actually is actually the worst thing in the world we can <laughs> we can think our way into anything yeah um and the reality is physically you're fine you're healthy you don't have any diseases um, the birds are out there chirping you're only alive for so many years um, this is the life that you have and it's better than somebody in bangladesh this is the reality, and but your mind creates all of these scenarios that are more and more negative and create a narrative of all the terrible things that are going on in your life, and it's not real. It's not real. You're living in an illusion, um, and so you got to be able to 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 break out of that. I mean, 
that's what Zen masters are able to do. So I'm not necessarily advocating that you're ever going to reach that point. I haven't necessarily reached that point. Mm -hmm. But every day in my meditating, I'm coming to the with like some anger, some resentment, and I'm going, ah, oh, that's not that's the word. When I die, I take all that anger and resentment with me. The world will never remember it. It has nothing to do yeah, with sure. reality. It's gone. It's with me in the grave. Why did I even bother with it? You know? Yeah. And also, you know, releasing it to a greater universal perspective of seeing self and everybody and realizing that these people you're envious of are really just you living a different life. And like, if you take a more universal perspective and say, oh, well, their pleasure is, in a sense, my pleasure, being that we're all. Well, connected. that would be that would be I, the integrated that's ideal. The, human. That's the full. That's yeah. kind of the picture where where mm. we're all going, going to where the world's happiness is your happiness, and that's the idea well, of the, that's, body, that's the bodhisattva, a, right? Like committing yourself to elevating the happiness of the world, even if it brings a bit of suffering onto you as well. That's a very beautiful way to look at things, and that to reach that point is is it's a great goal. enlightenment. Um, you know, you, you you talked earlier about the th in the book. I talk about the lower and the higher self. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to clarify that for people. It might feel like I'm kind of just talking about how bad humans are, and that we're riddled with envy and aggression and grandiosity. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, we have a higher self. Each person has it. I don't care who you are, um, and it's not an angelic thing. It's, you felt this before. It's something very real. You felt it when you worked really hard and you got some results that you, you, you had a plan and you actually realized it. That's that, your higher self came out in that moment. Your higher self came out when you, instead of judging someone, you actually tried to think about what their circumstances were and realized that they couldn't help it, what they were doing. Um, it wasn't personal if they got angry at you you felt some empathy and you understood them. When you have moments where you bring out your higher self, or let's say instead of getting emotional, you step back and you analyze yourself and you control it, it's a great feeling. Mm. It's, I compare it to there's a self in you that wants to come out, that's there, that's buried within, that will feel better. When we bring it out, we feel better. The lower self is our animal nature. It's that chimpanzee or that lizard inside of us. When you're bringing out the higher self, you're actually become, I say in the book, you're becoming human. Mm. You weren't really born human. You were born this sort of hybrid primate thing that's kind of pulled back into the muck of um, animal nature. I mean, I love animals, so I don't mean it that way. Um, you have to become human. And your lower self is your addictions, you're always wanting something easy and fast and quick. It's your aggression without thinking, et cetera. And when you indulge in that, you don't feel good. It's like a sugar high. You might feel a little bit high, but God, the next day, something about you, it doesn't sit well within you. You want to bring out that higher self, and I want you to confront that and not deny it anymore and see that that's, that's in you. It's in everyone. It's not like Gandhi is Gandhi and I could never reach that. No, every human has it. It's extremely democratic. And also when you look at somebody like Gandhi, don't expect him to not have those oh. human faults and oh, characteristics. Oh, do you <laughs> know about know. that? Yeah, because oh, he yeah. was sleeping with very young girls, yes, right? Yes, he like, was. So there was some 
non-integrated potentially who knows but shadow some part of his shadow that wasn't quite reconciled and he was quite manipulative Mm -hmm. so so like understand that you know people are this kind of mixed bag and will be expressing higher lower and so will you you'll be constantly and the goal is to move you know a little bit more from your lower yeah. to your higher faculties yeah and that's that's a noble enough goal it's yeah. not to be boom here i am descended from angels you know no no, no horns on this head <laughs> no, right no, here you yeah, know, i don't yeah. have any fingernails or sharp teeth or anything here i am i mean that's the one quality of human nature that like is sort of behind all the other laws it's always the other person <laughs> right they're irrational they're aggressive. They have envy. They're a narcissist. They are grandiose. It's never me. Mm. And it's been that way for since the beginning of time. You're always projecting your own dark side onto other people. Um, and, you know, it, it's not logical. The logic is we are all descended from the same group of early humans, right? Our brains are almost all wired the same. The brain has not really changed much since 60, 100,000 years ago. It's the same size, pretty much configured the same way. Language changed things quite a bit, but pretty much the same. We're all extremely related to each other. The differences between people and the way their brains are wired are less than 1%. So why would one person be aggressive and irrational and narcissistic and envious and not you? It doesn't make sense. This, the logical answer is every human has this tendency. It, it, we were born with it. It's our gift from nature, from who we are. So stop trying to exclude yourself and kind of come to this sort of logical conclusion. It's almost like we're, and a lot of people have talked about this, you know, we're a species in transition to a certain degree. And yeah, like from our animal nature, a little bit of consciousness cast us out of the garden in which we're yeah. fully in the present, just being an animal. Yeah. You know, and we, so the consciousness and self-awareness cast us out of that. And now we're somewhere in limbo. And really the only way back to become integrated as this new thing that we're becoming is a lot more consciousness, a lot more awareness. Like there's no going back. We can't forget our way back into being an animal. It's too late, you know? I mean, we can get kind of close with unconscious avoidance behaviors and enough drugs and completely being on program, but it's not the way to go. The way to go really is to do exactly what you're saying, shine light on everything, integrate it all, and become this somewhat philosophically prophesized man i mean what what are they talking about the return of quetzalcoatl or the ubermensch or this idea that all these philosophers have had of this next coming of a different type of person well what they're really talking about is an integrated human do they have that concept with the people who the shamans who do the ayahuasca and all that they do they do and the the thing about the plant medicine is you have to reconcile the shadow because Mm -hmm. But the, the, the fault that I think happens in that is that a lot of times there's still the move to externalize it. There's still the move to take your mapacho, which is the smoke that they use to kind of manipulate energy, and be always in contest with the darker forces and just be, I am light, this is dark, you know, and like anthropomorphize the darkness into a demon or an, into an entity oh. and try to remove it. So uh-huh. it doesn't do the full thing and then i, I think the the real mystics that have transcended that kind of level uh-huh. of shamanism say no 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 all is one all is god yeah. this is the 
the yin and the yang this is the polarity this is the existence we have so yeah. the devil is just an angel who took upon the burden of offering resistance so that we would have something to strive against yeah. so all is god all is one yeah. and then then you see things in a totally different light yeah. and i think that's the that is ultimately the the highest you know spiritual escalation that you can get to um, have you read uh, any carlos castaneda i have yeah, yeah. i have that was yeah. a huge part of my boyhood me too me too uh, it was and oh then I, that's then good I to hear out, then i that's found out hear. that uh you know again that was one of those moments where his work was invaluable to me you yeah. know and setting up the paradigm of what it means to be a warrior yeah you know making that choice to be an ordinary person or a warrior someone yeah. who's willing to go to battle with the forces of resistance inside yeah. themselves and then recognizing in his personal life wild bouts of irrational anger and manipulation who and carlos castaneda not don juan yeah yeah and I, then so but then realizing well do i throw out all yeah, of his but he's work? not don juan he's it's that's carlos right. castaneda yeah yeah for sure um yeah but we don't know if don juan is actually a real we don't even person know if he's real but so uh, that's true but either way the, the work holds regardless of whether the man yeah. had fully yeah. integrated his shadow you know well don juan talks a lot about the shadow and and uh, and is extremely aware of it and is always pointing it out to carlos mm -hmm. castaneda his shadow that's so sort of making me think about yeah and he was a shaman um wow that's very interesting the one person who i think if i had to say of all the people i've ever met who the most integrated human was it would be another toltec uh master don miguel ruiz and i, I don't know spend, uh he wrote the mastery of love the four agreements um, i'll have to write this yeah, down a couple of big books um but he's a toltec master himself and of all the people i've met and spent time with someone who when you watch them look at the sunset they're looking at it like this was the first and potentially last sunset they might ever see and when they have a sip of a glass of wine it's wow. the best glass now, of wine and every hug is like the best hug how do you how do you time. know this like is it just explain it's a feeling it's yeah a feeling what's the feeling though explain the feeling <clears throat> all right I'm, it's a feeling like i'm just curious i think we inherently can sense like when a kid is in it's like the the inner child it's a sense of awe it's mm -hmm. a sense of wonder it's the sense yeah. of like a smile that doesn't require the moving of the face to be yeah, there yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. shining through right. the eyes and and shining through the heart yeah and uh and to be with him for five days and see that because we've all touched it we've yeah. all felt what that feels like these ecstatic states and we've yeah. a lot of times chased those but to see for an extended period of time someone wow. in any variety of circumstance emanate that that was to me that helped me feel like okay maybe it is possible wow. maybe it is possible to really integrate in such a way that you can hold a higher vibration of consciousness yeah. for an extended period of time and it was wow. a beautiful gift to wow. be able to be in his presence and people talk about that with ramdas and there's a couple other people who people point to uh -huh. who really like kind of express that but actually feeling it made a big difference i've never had that experience so i'm very i'm very yeah. envious <laughs> and curious yeah um you know I, I and the other thing the reason i asked is um i talk a lot about in the book about well, i have a chapter on nonverbal communication um and getting away from words and using the part of intelligence that's wordless that's in, intuitive because with people we have that power so I was curious to hear about how you could sort of sense these things about him. Mm -hmm. It's not something you like can necessarily verbalize so easily or sure. analyze, but you sensed it. And I'm trying to get people 
to cultivate that part of themselves where they can sense things about others. I call it visceral empathy. It's um, great word. an empathy that comes from the gut, the hara um, in Japanese. Um, and I'm imagining our ancestors go back 80,000 years. They didn't have language but they were extremely attuned to each other because as you pointed out, their survival depended on getting, working together and being a group and being a tight tribe. They could sense uh, almost in an extra sensory perceptive way what was the feelings and emotions of other people. It's hard to gauge the thoughts of another person. I can't really know what you're thinking, although I can get better at that but I can sense your moods, your emotions, mm -hmm. your kind of, your tone of who you are and what you're feeling right now. Mm -hmm. We have incredible power to do that. I think way more than we give ourselves credit. Way more, way more. Um, and the main impediment is, is words, is language, is always thinking in terms, and trying to translate, because words simplify things. And they're always a lie because of that simplification. Like to a certain yeah. extent, they contain a delusion. Yeah. Because they're inherently a simplification. Yeah. Yeah. So if you cut that off and you start like trying to um, go more into that visceral empathy that I, and I talk about how you do that. Um, that's not easy. I'm not saying I give you the formula, but I try and point you in the direction of how you can do it. Uh, it's amazing what you can sense with people. I've, I'm not um, great at a lot of things. Uh, I'm not, I can't work with my hands very well. Um, but I've always had that ability, I think, because of the nature of my parenting and childhood to do that. Um, so it's not a, a gift that I'm born with. It's more the fact that as a child, I had to do this as a stra survival strategy. So I'm trying to demystify it. Yeah. But I've known that power um, and I know how great it can be. And I believe everybody has it. So when you're sensing that this person, because you know, I've never, I, I'm very interested in Zen, but I've never been around a Zen master. Mm. So I'd be very curious to know what that person would emanate yeah. viscerally that I would sense. So that's sort of what was I was intrigued yeah. by that. I think it's interesting you mentioned that this was a defense mechanism to a certain degree from your childhood, because I, I too have a strong, keen sense of visceral empathy to use your language. And I know exactly how it developed. It developed from my father who I could say one little thing and then days later he could ruminate on it and allow his thoughts to make this magnify this and then he would corner me and yell at me and be very verbally and oh. like aggressively he wouldn't like hit me but very like verbally abusive oh. about some minor thing that that I had said earlier so uh. it it gave me this like need to genuinely understand wow. at all points wow. what i was saying and how that could be interpreted wow. and what the subtle moods were yeah, yeah. amongst you know amongst yeah. my family and wow. so that became a superpower now that yeah. superpower also came with a challenge in that yeah. i'm constantly analyzing yeah. everybody like and constantly analyzing myself as to how everything can be interpreted which can be exhausting but it's like and, superpower and challenge and also uh, you can be hypersensitive sure like you, inter you, you, your antennae pick up too, a little too much, yeah. and you start feeling, oh, maybe it's my fault, or maybe something's yeah. wrong with me. Yeah. I know, you're right? I, uh, I, I share that quality. So, you're, what I was trying to say, and what you picked up on is, 
it doesn't necessarily come from a great place. Mm. It could come from the fact that you're missing something in your childhood and you have to be the parent and you have to sense what they're, so they should be sensing what you're feeling and helping you, but instead you have to sense what they're feeling to protect yourself or defend yourself. And a lot of hypersensitive people like that come from backgrounds like that. Yeah, and it's neither a blessing nor a curse. Exactly. You know, it's like it's both. It's exactly. both a superpower and a challenge. So exactly. just accept it for what it is and and know that that's, that's a part of you and reconcile it, integrate it. it. Yeah. 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 Well, man, this is awesome. Oh. I love having these conversations. Yeah, yeah. I could, uh, I'm a blabbermouth. I could go on for a, I'm violating law number four. I'll uh, always say less than necessary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I mean, there's so much. Obviously, we're talking about human nature. And I think this yeah. is a subject that is. And I think the beautiful thing of what you've done is these are almost. You've created almost these just tomes of information around a topic. And it's so freaking valuable. Oh, what you're nice. what you're really contributing like these yeah. are timeless tomes of information and knowledge things that people can reference for hundreds of years oh. into the future and I, I think it's just i'm just grateful that you decided oh. to embark upon this path and take it upon yourself to do this because it's oh. benefited me incredibly and it's going to benefit oh. humanity as well oh well thank you thank you are we reaching there at the end here we could be i don't yeah. know we could power through how long how long have we gone on here 125 yeah that's no, up to you uh, do you do you edit things down nope oh you nope. don't this is all oh, this you're is like hear this right now you're gonna hear this banter right now it's, it's the joe rogan uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the okay well the one the only yeah. other thing i wanted to touch on sure so, I, so we'll, we'll compromise and we'll go one more topic is it's a beautiful concept from stoicism and it's uh and ryan actually has these cool little coins made from it called memento mori like yeah remember that you're going to die yeah and how to use mortality as an ally this is like almost one of the perhaps the ultimate mental judo yeah. move right yeah. instead of this thing that we fear the most death okay let's make that the thing that makes our life the most beautiful yeah let's take that energy and let's reverse it yeah and make it beautiful and you talk about that in this book as well yeah uh, so there are 18 chapters and the last chapter is called confront or meditate on our common mortality and it's how to get over your fear of death um, which isn't easy, and I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. Um, but I make the point, um, there's several aspects to it. Um, one aspect is you can do a little thought experiment sometime. Um, I tried it the other day when I was in New York, and you're walking down the street. Try and look at all the people that are passing you by and realize that each one of them is going to die. And... Um, it could be tomorrow, it could be in a few years, but that each one of them is going to die. And in 30 years, 40 years, none of them will be here. And you just live with that for 10 minutes, 15 minutes as you're walking down a busy street. It can have a pretty powerful effect on you. It, it, it had that on me. I'm hoping it would work for other people. It's like, it suddenly makes you realize that uh, mortality is something that our awareness of it is what connects us all. Mm. It can actually be incredible empathy opening uh, exercise for you. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I, I think there's incredible value in that moment of opening yourself. So instead of thinking of death as this personal thing, oh me, oh my, I'm gonna die, how oh, miserable, it's just me. No, it's like, 
it's life. It's a life process. It's what connects you to the world. It's actually, you can't have life without death. Mm. Um, and it also connects you to other people. Um, so, and this isn't something hard, easy to put into words, but it makes you feel, instead of looking at someone who's walking down the street and going, God, they're kind of like, that person looks like an asshole. If you think about their mortality and something like that, it kind of alters how you might judge them. You, you, you soften up a bit. And I think there's some great value to that softening up. But the second thing is our fear of death is, has, has twisted and warped our minds for thousands and thousands of years since we first became aware that we are going to die. The only animal that is consciously aware of death mm -hmm. years in advance. Um, it has warped us. It has caused us to behave in all kinds of irrational ways, to imagine an after, a heaven, you know, and other, other ways of avoiding it. And, and if the point of my book and of who we are is to be conscious and aware and to not avoid and deny and go into darkness, then the ultimate challenge is to do that with death. And if you actually look it in the in square in the eye, if you do, I, I, I talk even about a visceral connection to death, so I use that word quite a bit in sense of samurai warriors had a death center right here. This is where they would kill, do harikiri. You can actually feel your death right here. If you, if you come to terms with it, you look at square in the eye, you stop running away, you think about it, um, you, you, you think about all the fears that you had in childhood. Part of the problem that we have, particularly in the modern world, is we're so ridden, riddled with anxiety. And we don't know what that anxiety is. We're always anxious. I know I feel that you wake up mm. anxious. You're in the day feeling anxious. That anxiety, I believe, comes from, at the root of it, is that you're avoiding the thought of your own mortality. I know that sounds abstract, but I believe that that is what caused it beginning on in childhood when we started trying to run away from that thought. This is a way when you turn around and look at it instead of turning away from it for finally getting rid of a lot of that anxiety, for getting rid of a lot of these patterns of avoidance in your life. I feel like the avoidance of death makes you avoid challenges. It makes you avoid fear-inducing uh, fear situations. It makes you avoid possible failure. It makes you avoid relationships. When you split up from a person or they say goodbye to you, it's like a little death. Mm. You know, when you separate from people, it's a little death. You don't want that. When you turn around and you face it square in the eye and you look at it and you can find it, and it's not easy and I'm not trying to sugarcoat it, it's actually really powerful. And I really feel like this is what the future human could do. It could finally, instead of our fear of death being what enslaves us, it could be what liberates us. And um, it can help us get rid of all that latent anxiety that we feel. And it can actually expand our minds. Um, I talk in, in several books about the sublime. This will be the last thing I talk about here. Too. The sublime, which is literally something so vast, your mind can't really encompass it. So when you look out in the night sky, if you actually thought about how, how infinite space is or how infinite time is, you can't put that into words. You can't put the fact that five billion years ago, 
life somehow started on the planet Earth. You can't, there's no words won't encompass sure. it. That's the sublime. Yeah. It goes beyond what you can verbalize. That's like a confrontation with death. Something so vast, so unknown, so immense, you can't verbalize it. When you look at it that way, it's a really mind-blowing thought uh, that can transform you in so many ways. I'm not, I'm an explorer. I'm an advent, an explorer like from the 16th century. I'm exploring the world. I can't say for sure this is what will happen or this is for sure the effect on you. I'm speculating. I'm thinking this is what the human could do if we finally turned around and confronted our mortality. And maybe in the future, humans will do that. I 100% agree. I think this is the place that holds the most fear in the human organism. And fear is the virus that infects us all. It infects yeah. us with delusion. It infects us with, uh, you know, inaction and all of the things that limit us from experiencing this. And you strike fear, you know, strike the head of the leader yeah. and all the rest of the fears, you know, that you have to strike down from right. there are a lot more manageable. Right. And, and you strike it down by embracing it. You know, yeah. you don't, by not by running from it, not by trying to cryo freeze your brain, right. but saying, you know, I think there's a, one of my favorite quotes in any movie was from Troy when Achilles says, let me tell you a secret, the gods envy us because of our mortality, uh -huh. right? Because everything yeah. is so much more beautiful when yeah. you don't have an endless bowl of grapes, but you just have those three frozen ones. Everything yeah. is better. When I was holding my grandmother's hand in the hospital bed for the last time, mm. there was a quality to that encounter, knowing that it would be my last. Yeah. that i'll never forget i'll never forget the feel of her hands on yeah. on the stone that i had in my hand and yeah and if you know that it's the last time you're going to see your lover and you've gotten yeah. past the resentment and everything like that moment is is available to us all but it's death that gives us the gift yeah. that makes it precious and yeah. so you know death is death is our ally if we embrace yeah. it and it's our greatest enemy if we run from it yeah exactly and um uh I don't remember what I was going to say. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say. Momentum. I had some incredible pearl of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> now it's fallen to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, uh, that'll give us a reason to talk next time. There, okay. we'll excavate some pearls. And... Yeah, it's probably somewhere in the chapter, so I'll, I'll refer you to chapter eighteen. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I can't wait to give the book a full and complete read. And oh, uh, wow. That's the, the other beautiful thing about your books is it's not only the content, but also these stories that you'll be able to have and be able to apply. And uh -huh. I'm still telling stories from your 48 Laws books and different books about, uh -huh. you know, Victor Lustig, the con artist that <laughs> sold the Eiffel Tower and, you know, Dostoevsky's stay of execution and his proclivity to gamble it all the way to put himself back in a desperate state. And I'm like, you know, recounting these things that have never come uh -huh. to my consciousness. That's it wasn't for your book that's the best compliment anyone could ever give me because <laughs> that means it like got into your skin somehow yeah and stayed with you so wow no doubt thank you no doubt yeah. well check it out the laws of human nature it'll uh, be out october 23rd october 23rd yeah don't miss it another masterpiece from the master thanks everybody thank Peace. you i hope you guys got a lot out of that podcast as i did and please check out his book the laws of human nature pre-order it order it get it any way you can. There's just so much wisdom in this book and all the rest of his books. So I really encourage you guys to check it out. If you haven't checked it out already, come hang with me in LA, November 10th and 11th 
It's going to be incredible. We got relationship dinners and business masterminds and transformative practices and dope coaches like Kyle Kingsbury, Christine Hassler, Duncan Trussell's coming by to speak. Dr. Chris Ryan's looking to come by to speak. We got amazing people there available. Myself, Whitney Miller, I'd love to see you. Just go to aubreymarcus.com slash weekend. And then if you want something more extensive and you want to start January 1st, of course, the Fit for Service Mastermind, aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service. Check that out. That's going to be a full year's breadth, starting with physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual optimization. A lot of cool things in the works. Or just keep listening to the podcast and commenting on all the social media and sharing the love and talking to your friends. That's all beautiful and perfect too. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.